thanks for listening to the Radiant Church Podcast. This is David Perkins, and we're so glad that you're listening. Hey, if you're a part of our family meeting online or in person, we want to encourage you to get connected at Radiant Church KC across all social media platforms. God is doing something incredible in Kansas City, and we love connecting with you, whether it's through our app or even through all the content available on our YouTube page. Hey, our prayer is that God uses this message to change your life and that you could become a dynamic disciple of Jesus. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this message. Good morning, Radiant Church. Good to see you guys. For those of you who don't know, I'm Banning Liebscher all the way from California. Can I say something real quick about that? we have a moment here? Can we have just an honest conversation? Listen, I talk about your weather every January. I come every January now. I think it's the fourth year in a row. I talk about your weather. and make fun of it. But this is ridiculous. <laughs> My face hurt walking from the car into church today. And, uh, and I've been out here when I, I have been here and we had to cancel second service because of a snowstorm. David came up to me right after I'm done preaching first service said, you have to go to the airport right now. We have to leave right now. It was like some, and, uh, and then I sat at the airport for 10 hours and then they canceled the flight. Uh, but this is ridiculous. I don't know. It's, this is just dumb weather. I, this is, you know what I'm actually convinced of? I'm convinced that if you go to church in sub zero temperatures, you get a special reward in heaven. So go ahead and pat yourself on the back this morning. I'm telling you right now, you're going to get an extra jewel in your crown. You're going to get an indoor swimming pool in your mansion that no neighbors are going to have. Something is going to be given to you for showing up to church in sub-zero, or you're just an idiot. There's, I don't know where it is. There's, there's some fine line there, but man, it's, it's cold, but good to be here. Really, really good to be here. Always love coming out. Can I tell you my theory on a 21 days of prayer and fasting, if you haven't jumped in already? I think the Lord's so gracious that if you jump in now and you miss the first week, he gives you credit for all 21 days. He just, if you do 14, he's so good, he just gives you credit for all 21 days. And I uh, would really encourage you to jump in. We're right in the middle of a fast as well, so I love that we're doing that. Uh, um, good to be here, Renata. Always good to see you and the family. I was with David yesterday in Omaha, and then I drove uh, uh, last night to get here. Uh, do you have your, it's funny, when, when you're from California, and all of the people from Omaha, so I got done preaching, I think I left there at 8.30 at night, and they said, uh, they all treat me like I'm three years old, because I'm from California and never driven in snow, and so they're like, are you going to be okay? I mean, they were literally circling around me, praying for me in inner city before I left. They're like, oh, Father, keep him safe on the road. It was amazing. I'm like, this is how, this is how Midwesterners view Californians. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, they're like, ah, I don't know, kid, you. Do you have your Bibles? Get your Bibles out. We're going to go to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 13. It is always good to be here. Absolutely love your church, love your pastors, and uh, uh, just really consider them to be friends. Romans chapter 12, and then we're going to go to Romans chapter 13. I want to talk to you, uh, even when you're in the midst of 21 days of prayer and fasting, I want to talk to you about something I really believe that the Lord wants to do in this year and uh, what he wants to do in his church and his people, and just kind of speak to you prophetically, if I could. One of the marking moments for us, if you don't know our history, I, I uh, was on staff at uh, Bethel Church in Reading. I'm actually from Reading. I was on staff there for 18 years, and during that time, we started, at the time, it was a youth, a youth movement called Jesus Culture, and uh, we were doing conferences and music, but I remember early on, probably 17 years ago or so, we had a conference. It was one of those kind of marking times for us. It was before things had really kind of taken off. 
And uh, we were at, a, at Reading. Reading's not a big town. There's maybe 90,000 people in Reading. And there's a, a main kind of convention center, civic center building that we would have our youth conferences in. It would hold about 21, 22, 2,300 kids. And these teenagers would come in. I remember one night, we were in the middle of a conference, and uh, we were about an hour and 15 minutes into worship with these teenagers. I mean, they were just going after God. And packed in the room, 2,300 of them. And there was a moment where about an hour and 15 minutes into worship, all the instruments dropped out, and they started singing this hallelujah chorus. Uh, the, the sound guy got the decibels, and they were singing at 110 decibels. It was just this, it's hard to describe a moment, but it was just these young people, the entire room, wholehearted consecration, just releasing a cry to God. And I, and I remember it, it was a marking moment for me because I was off to the side stage, just on my knees, kind of on my face before the Lord. And the Lord began to speak to me in that moment that he wanted to take what was happening in that room and he wanted to see it hit an entire generation in America. This was kind of one of the catalysts or the things that happened for us that we began to believe God for revival amongst young people was when the Lord began to, in that moment, say, the cry that's happening in this room, I want to see an entire generation impacted by. But here's what I believe as we come into 2024, and here's what the Lord's been stirring in my heart. I don't think it's just for teenagers. I think that God wants to release a cry in the heart of his people for him and for revival. That ultimately, in the next 14 days and in this year, my prayer is this. My prayer is that God would awaken a cry inside of you for him and for revival, which I simply mean for God to move in our day and in our generation. That you would actually have a cry in your heart for God. I don't know if you know this, but I believe that the normal Christian life is a life of hunger. I believe that the normal Christian life is a life of a cry for God and a cry for God to move. It's not radical Christianity. For so many of us, it's been this thing where it's like, well, there's kind of like, there's like normal Christianity and then there's radical Christianity. And radical Christianity is kind of those people that pray and they're hungry for God and they're crying out to him to move in their day and, and they want to see revival. And, that's kind of, and then there's normal Christianity. Listen, normal Christianity. God put inside of every believer a desire and a hunger and ultimately a cry for him and a desire for him to move in their day. It's normal Christianity. It's actually abnormal not to have a cry inside of your heart for God and for him to move. We're all designed to have hunger in our hearts. Many of you guys would know the term anorexia from, from an eating disorder, but the term anorexia is actually a medical definition, and, and it's a diagnosis, it's a medical diagnosis. When somebody um, loses uh, appetite, when there is a loss of appetite, a decrease in appetite, or a loss of appetite, the actual medical term, the diagnosis is anorexia. And the medical world knows this, that in the natural, if you are not hungry, in the natural, if you have a decrease in appetite or a loss in appetite, the, the medical world knows this, that's not good. That's unhealthy. That's abnormal. The spiritual, it's the same way. 
And I, and I want to tell you, one of the things that happens when we separate, when we, when we pull aside for a season, the, the Christian life is a life of, of a rhythm of prayer and pursuit of God. But there are times, like 21 days, there are times where the Lord kind of calls us aside in a special way. And in those moments, he's wanting to meet with us. In Exodus chapter 3, there's a passage. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees the burning bush and he turns aside. And the Bible says that when God saw that he turned aside, he began to speak to him. There's something about even in a normal life of pursuing God, there are moments and seasons where we turn aside and God wants to speak to us. He wants to meet with us and he wants to release things to us in those moments. And what I'm telling you this morning is this, is that I believe that God wants to meet with you and I believe God wants to awaken a, a fresh and increased cry for him and for him to move in our day. Paul instructs the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He tells them, listen, don't lose. Don't be lacking in zeal and spiritual fervor. Listen to this passage. Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Listen, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. That word fervor in the Greek is actually describing a hot. It's a, you know, there's a reason why in youth group we would talk about being on fire for God. That word is actually, um, it's describing the t when, when liquid begins to boil, when liquid gets so hot it begins to boil, or when metal begins to glow, it's so hot. I mean, if you guys grew up with a, a wood stove, and if you remember sometimes we have this wood, this madrone wood. I don't know if you'd have madrone out here, but it's like a part of the Manzanita family. It's this really dense, thick wood. And so you'd pack, the, you'd pack that wood stove with it. It would get so hot, like the, the metal would begin to glow. That's actually what that Greek word is talking about. It's when it gets so hot that liquid begins to boil and when it gets so hot that metal would begin to glow. Paul says this, listen, you need to not be lacking in zeal and make sure that you keep your life burning for God. And there are moments when that, when that appetite sometimes decreases or when that fire begins to dim or that cry lessens and we pull aside and the Lord says, here's what I want to do. I want to awaken the cry inside of you. And I will tell you this, in 2024, I believe what the Lord is doing is he is awakening his church again. I believe that God is awakening believers with a cry for him. I want you to read this in Romans. If you just go to the next chapter, just turn right one chapter. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. It says this. Paul's writing. Now I want you to understand this. Paul's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to the lost. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who are followers of Jesus. And he says this. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Listen to this again. And do this understanding the present time 
The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Everywhere I go, I get the privilege of traveling and being connected with pastors and leaders. And everywhere I go, doesn't matter if it's in the, in the States, it doesn't matter if it's in America or around the world, there is a stirring and there is a rumbling and there is an awareness that God is doing something. There is a hunger that's stirring in the hearts of people. There is a cry that is being awakened. Here's why I believe it's happening. Because I believe that we are about to see God move in unprecedented ways in our day and that we're about to see the greatest harvest the world's ever seen. There's a, if you were to ask me uh, my, my favorite book on revival, this, is, this would be my top book on revival. It's a book called In the Day of Thy Power by a man named Arthur Wallace. Arthur Wallace wrote In the Day of Thy Power in the 50s. He was one of the fathers of the charismatic movement in the 60s and 70s in the UK. He wrote, he's written a few other books. But Arthur Wallace wrote a book called uh, Revival, In the Day of Thy Power, about revival. And he mentions, I'm going to read this to you, but he mentions that revival involves two awakening cries. I want you to hear this. It's not on the screen, so you're going to have to lock in with me. Listen to this. Revival involves two awakening cries. God crying to man... Awake, awake, O Zion. He's referencing Isaiah 52. And man crying to God. Awake, awake, put on strength to arm the Lord. Awake as in the days of old. He's referencing Isaiah 51. Now listen to this. When the voice of the Lord has awakened the church, the voice of the church will awaken the Lord and the power of God will be manifested in the saving of sinners. When it is seen that for a long time the Almighty has slumbered, the cry of the church pierces the heavens. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Arthur Wallace, in his study of revival, comes to this conclusion. That in revival, there are two cries that happen. The first one is God awakening his church. It's God shaking them out of that place of slumber. That God's, cry, that God's cry comes to us and says, awake, awake, and, and the church awakens. And the next cry is when the church awakens, a cry comes out of them for God to move in their day. A cry comes out of them that says, awake, awake, put on strength to arm of the Lord, as in the days of old. There's two cries. And he says, when the cry of the Lord has awakened the church, when the voice of the Lord has awakened the church, the voice of the church will awaken the Lord. It will manifest in the saving of sinners. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. What we have seen again and again throughout biblical history and throughout church history is that anytime God moves, he first awakens his church. He first shakes his church out of slumber. He first comes and awakens individuals. There's a, um, if you, the, the Welsh revival, the Welsh revival, you may not know this, but you trace your lineage and your roots. If you're in this church at all, you trace your lineage roots somehow back to uh, Wales um, and Azusa Street and different things. But, but uh, there was a revival that happened in Wales in 1904. Uh, one of the most significant revivals in the past 200 years or so. 
and uh, um, led by a young man named Evan Roberts, 26 years old, a profound revival that happened. It was uh, just, just marked by the presence of God. They would just be rushing to churches, just not even, man, there wouldn't even be somebody leading it. They would just be worshiping. And uh, uh, I mean, uh, police forces were having to, had no work, judges had no work, just stories of bars shutting down. It's just amazing stories coming out of this thing. And they had in about nine months, they added on that island of Wales, they had about 100,000 people come to the Lord and get added to churches in this nine-month period. But, but one of the points that an author points out is, is that two years before, before the outpouring in Wales in 1904, two years before that, all across Wales, there were prayer meetings that began to pop up. They weren't connected. They weren't coordinated. It was kind of unbeknownst to one another, but prayer began to pop up all over Wales in, in houses and in businesses and, and in churches. And there was this rumbling of prayer for two years before the outpouring in 1904. And the author actually connects this reality. He, he ties it in with the concept of uh, birth, with, with birth, birth pangs and a baby. And his point is this, is that birth pangs don't create the baby. The baby creates the birth pangs. It's not the birth pangs that actually create the baby. It's the baby that's actually creating the birth pangs. And he ties it in that it's not even prayer that causes revival. It's revival that causes prayer. That, that it, wasn't, it wasn't revival that brought, it wasn't prayer that brought revival. It was revival that brought prayer. Because this is what God does. God says, I want to move. I want to pour out my spirit. And in order to do that, I am going to awaken my church to lift up their cry to me, to lift up their voice to me. And in response to their cry, I'm going to move. In order to fully understand prayer, you have to be able to understand God as a father. In fact, to understand what I'm talking about here, whenever God intends to move, you cannot find in history a moment where God moved, where he first did not awaken an individual or a group of individuals who began to lift up their voice to him. And then he moved in response. In order to understand this principle, you have to understand God as a father. When Jesus taught on prayer, he was consistently connecting us to the revelation of the Father. Read the teachings of Jesus on prayer. And he would say, listen, when you pray, go into the secret because your Father is in secret. He's trying to say, you're about to go meet with a Father. When you separate to prayer, you're about to meet with a Father. He says, listen, you're earthly fathers and you wouldn't give a stone if your son asked for bread how much more will your heavenly father, he's consistently connecting that revelation of father. And one of the things that I want you to realize, even in the next 14 days, is, is that God responds to you as a father would to a child. That you actually move the heart of God. That God is moved by you. This is why his strategy is to awaken you to shake you out of slumber so that you'll begin to lift up your voice to him. And then as a father, he'll respond to his children. I, uh, they, my oldest is 24 years old. And um, I remember we got married at 21. You know, we had, we had Ellie at 22. 
And so we were young parents, and, and, and I remember everybody would tell us, oh, man, when you have a kid, you're going to learn all about the Father heart of God. And, you know, at the time, I'm like, okay, I don't even know what that means, but okay. And, uh, and then we had, our, we had our first girl, and she was born, and she was, this, she was this small, little, round, fat thing. She was just this fat little baby. And she, she's a cute little fat little thing. And she would just sit there. She didn't walk. She didn't crawl till 10 months. She didn't walk till 15 months. Because she literally just sat there, chunky, and was like, why would I crawl? You'll come get me. Like, this is literally what I think she thought. Like, why would I walk? You'll come get me when I cry, you know? And still at 24, she'll be on the couch like, get me something to eat. I'm like, you're 24. Get up. But, so, but what happened was, we, we were about, I don't know, she was almost a year. And, um, and she would go to bed at night in her crib, but she'd wake up around one or two and start crying. And, you know, I'm 22. You know how dramatic you are, 22? And I'm like, dude, I, I, like, and I just wanted sleep. And I'm like, oh, I can't make it. So I would just get her and just stick her in bed with us. It's just so much easier. She'd just go back to sleep. And, uh, and we had a big California king, so it worked. But then she began to decide that she wanted to sleep horizontal. And so all of a sudden, I, 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 would, I would be sleeping all night long with a little foot in my back all night long. And I couldn't sleep with it. It was just driving me crazy. So I finally came to my wife, CJ, and I said, CJ, this isn't working. We have got to get this girl to sleep through the night. But we're total rookie parents, have no clue what we're doing. And we're like, I don't know how to get her to sleep through the night. She won't. And so I said, I'm going to go talk to some parents. So I go to some of the mentor parents in my life. And I just said, hey, uh, Ellie's not sleeping through the night. What do we do? And all of them say the same thing. They all go, oh, well, you got to break her. I was like, what? They're like, you got to break her. I said, she's not a horse. She's a little fat baby. <laughs> they said, you got to break her. I'm like, well, how do you break her? She, they go, oh, you got to let her cry it out. I said, what do you mean you got to let her cry? They said, you got to let her cry. She'll figure it out. She'll figure it out and go back to sleep. I'm like, how long does that take? They said, it could take four or five hours. Four or five hours. And they said, and it could take four or five nights. Four or five, what? They're like, yep, that's what you got to do. So I go home to CJ. I'm like, CJ, all right. Uh, I guess we have to break Ellie. We got to break Ellie, and it's this whole thing. And so I'm not making this up right now. We got our schedules out, and we're like, all right, uh, when do we have five nights free that we can do this? And so we kind of coordinate our schedules, and we're like, okay, break Ellie. All right, we're doing this. Let's do this. So first night comes around, and we're ready. I mean, we're geared up. We're going to do this. First night comes around. I put her to bed like normal. Sure enough, around 1 o'clock, she wakes up. So I go in, she's standing, I, again, I wish you could see her, a little round, fat face. And she's standing there, crying. I go up to Ellie, Ellie, you're a big girl now. And big girls sleep in their bed. Big girls sleep all night long in their bed. I lay her down, she immediately jumps up, just holding on the crib, crying. I walk out, I shut the door behind me, I go into our bedroom. Now, this is before streaming and all that stuff. And so we, we flip the light switch on, we turn some infomercials on, and we're going to do this. We're doing this. Four or five hours, we're in. We planned it in our schedule. I turned to my wife, who's the weaker of us both, and I said, CJ, you need to be strong right now. I know that your girl's going to try to push your buttons. I know that you think she's not going to do it, but she'll figure it out. She'll figure this out. CJ goes, okay. And then about 10 minutes into her crying, first night of us attempting this, 10 minutes into her crying, she starts going. In the middle of a crisis, where, da da, where, da da, 
that. And I am dying in my, I'm, I am in my room dying. I turn to my wife. How could you? How could you force our daughter to sleep through the night? And I get up and I walk into the room and she's crying. And I said, Ellie, you could sleep with us forever. And I picked her up and I brought her in and I put her in bed with us. And she slept with us for the next year. I really genuinely wish you fully understood how much you move the heart of the Father. I think that your prayer life, I think that you would lift up a cry to God if you really understood how you as his child moves his heart. This is the strategy of God that when he intends to move, he first awakens his church. Because when he awakens this, his church, the response is a cry that comes from them for him and for him to move in their day. And he responds. So here's the reality, is that Paul's writing in Romans 13 to Christians, and there's, there's a reality that you can be saved going to heaven and still spiritually asleep that you can actually come and sit in chairs every Sunday and be spiritually asleep. Paul's writing and saying, it's time to wake up. It's time to be shaken out of that slumber. Because, because we can actually, this is actually what religion is. Religion is, is that you can actually go through the motions of Christianity and not actually be awake. It's just, it's just stupid sermon. It's stupid Story Sermon Sunday. I'm going to tell you another stupid story. When I was, uh, if you get, I don't know anybody married in here where you're dating somebody and you get married, you say the vows, and then the next week and the next month and the next year, you learn a whole bunch about your spouse you didn't know about them when you were dating. All of a sudden you begin to live together and you realize like, wow, there's a bunch of stuff I didn't know about you. <laughs> and that, but, but I already said vows, right? I made a covenant, so this is, I guess we're in this. My wife discovered one of these things. When I, was, when I was growing up, I like slept, walked, and slept, talked a ton. I don't really anymore, but when I was growing up, I did. My parents would just find me walking around the house, or I'd just be having conversations with them. And then in my early, in my 20s, I still was doing a little bit. And we're, we're about nine months into marriage. And uh, my wife discovers this about me. We're about nine months into marriage, and we were living in a house. It was a, we were in kind of a small master bedroom, and so our our uh, our bed was kind of parallel to the sliding glass door that led into the backyard. And I slept on that side of the bed. And uh, she wakes up one night, right in the middle of the night, dark outside, middle of the night. She wakes up and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, staring into the backyard. And she's laying in bed, 21, she's 21. She goes, Manny, what's going on? What's going on? And this is what I say. I go, they're out there. She goes, wait, who's out there? What's going on? Who's out there? What's happening right now? And I said, I, I said they're out there. And she goes, and then I lay down and just go back to sleep. <laughs> and she's just laying in bed like, Benny, wait, hold on. Who's out there? What's going on? Why? What's going on? Who's out there? Are they, 
And she wakes up in the morning. She's like, what were you talking about? I'm like, what do you mean what was I talking about? I was asleep all night. She's like, no, I had a conversation with you last night. And you, she's just up the rest of the night just worried. She, she's had multiple conversations with me that I just have no clue what she's talking about because I was asleep. You can actually be asleep going through the motions of things. You can actually be asleep and walking around and having conversations. God wants to awaken you. And can I tell you this right now? Some of you won't fully understand the last season of your life or the context of what's happening right now until you understand God will do whatever it takes to shake you out of slumber. Some of you right now that if you look at your life, you'll realize, oh my gosh, this is what God's doing. He's shaking me out of slumber. Because his goal is this, is that I would have a cry for him come from my life. That God awakens us in times of prayer and times of separation. One of the things he does is he comes and he meets with us and, he, and he, he awakens in us a cry for him. And that cry for him, when it arises from our life, awakens him in our day. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not just talking about Listen, I, 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 I believe in radical Christianity. I believe in a Christianity where you have a, a hunger growing in your life for God, a cry for God, and a cry for revival, which is what I said. Just I'm gonna, If I simplify revival down to this, it's just God moving in our day. That we, that we should have a cry for God for our family, that we should have a cry for God for our, where we work. We should have a cry for God for our city. And, I, and I'm not talking about that all of a sudden you've got to spend 80 hours a week in a prayer room or you have to somehow stand up on a park bench and preach the gospel every day. For, I'm talking about you can wake up and go live your normal life with a cry burning in your heart for God. That every day that you wake up, there's just a cry that says, God, we need you. I need you. That God would increase that hunger. See, part of, the, part of what happens is, is, is that Jesus consistently tells us that we're to watch and pray. There, there's a concept that we're to watch and pray. When Paul writes this, he says, listen, understanding the present time. Paul's making this point. Understanding the present time, you need to be awakened from your slumber. When we watch and when we pray, what happens is, let me just say this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use two analogies on this. One is, I believe that many people watch but don't pray. And when you watch but don't pray, it actually leads you to a place of discouragement and despair rather than a place of faith and hope. Many people are very aware of Isaiah 60, that deep darkness is covering the earth. They're aware of that. They can see it. But when you watching should lead you to a place of praying. Because when I watch and I understand the present time, it should lead me to a place of prayer where I begin to lift up my voice and I begin to lift up my cry to God. Not out of a place of despair, but out of a place of declaration that says, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. But God calls us to watch. He calls us to understand the moment. So many believers, when they're going through life asleep spiritually, 
They are unaware of the moment. I need you to hear me on this. Many believers are asleep spiritually, and I don't say that in a harsh way. Uh, many times we all have areas in our life that are spiritually asleep that God wants to awaken. But when I am spiritually asleep, I am, uh, I'm unable to watch. I can't see the moment. And when I can't see the moment, my priorities are off. Because it is understanding the moment. The moment sets the priorities. The mo uh, uh, I'll give you an example of this. My, I have three kids, like I said, 24-year-old, 21-year-old, and then 18-year-old. And uh, so for all three childbirths, I was in the room. But for the first two with my girls, I don't know how to describe this. I wasn't down by the action. We had actually brought in some, uh, my wife had intercessor ladies come in. So for our first two births, there was just intercessor ladies. Fantastic. They're just in the room and they were kind of down there. And they're, I mean, you should have been in the room. They're just like, it's just, uh, just a hospital, doctor, nurse, and intercessor. You know, they're just declaring and they're praying and my wife's giving birth. It was amazing. It was wonderful. And, uh, the, but the whole time for my first two, I'm just like up by her, you know, head and just telling her how wonderful she is and the most amazing woman ever and whatever, you know, whatever she needed to hear. And, um, and then she was telling me I'm horrible. No, she wasn't, but. But, but, but for the third one, for my son, um, I experienced something I didn't experience with my girls because we were the only, I was just me and her. I mean, there was the nurse and the doctor, but we didn't have anybody else that are just me and her. And I experienced something in childbirth that I've never experienced before. I actually was able to see the baby delivered. And there's a moment in childbirth uh, called crowning where the head of the baby becomes visible for the first time. It's just the top of the head, a small little part of the head, but, but it's the first time that you physically lay eyes on the child that you have been falling in love with, praying for, preparing for, this child that's going to be yours. You physically see it for the first time. I'll never forget it. It, I, I, it was an unbelievable moment for me where I could see, I'm like, that's my boy. That's my boy. That's the top of his head. I can see him with my own eyes. Before we got to the hospital, I want to preface it with this. My wife had, um, we were going to, we were actually, it was a Wednesday night in August 2005. He, Lake wasn't supposed to be born for another week or something. And so we were going to go on a date. And uh, my wife wasn't really having too many contractions. We were going to go on a date. And so and I thought the best date, because she was pretty pregnant, it was the middle of the summer. I said, let's go to the driving range. You can sit, chat away, and I'll hit golf balls. And she's like, all right. I was fit. It's, it's the perfect. You sit there, wind her up. She just starts talking. And then, uh, and then I just hit golf balls while I'm listening, you know. And uh, so we were headed there. We we're going to we go to the driving range. Just a date night. And she said, hey, let's swing by the hospital. I just wanted to check me out real quick because, uh, you know, just it's my wife likes information. She said, I just want to see kind of what's going on, where I'm at. So we said, we're going to swing by the hospital and go to the driving range. So we go by the hospital, go in, and uh, we walk in. And they just said, they said, oh, oh, sweetie, you're not going anywhere. She said, why not? They said, uh, you're dilated to, a, you're 90% effaced and dilated, dilated to a seven. You're having this baby right now. <laughs> and so in the moment, though, when, when the head of the baby's crowning, that, that moment sets the priorities. 
Whatever other priorities were happening in my life, take a back seat. And they weren't even bad priorities. It wasn't like they were like negative. It wasn't a good or evil priorities. Whatever priorities they had became secondary because the moment of that baby coming now set the priorities. I didn't come to my wife when she's pushing and the head's coming out. I didn't come to her and say, hey, do you mind if I go hit some golf balls? Do you mind? Do you mind if I, because I was kind of, we were headed over there and I was kind of pretty excited about going to hit some golf balls tonight. You mind, I'll be right back. I'll be back in a little bit. Like I didn't do that. Because the priorities I had, not even bad priorities, shifted because the moment now determines the priorities. When we don't watch, when we are asleep spiritually, and we don't watch, our priorities are off. But when you watch and when you pray, you will recognize that understanding the present time, we must be awakened from our slumber. And we must allow a cry to come out of us that says, God, would you move in our day? That we're not just going to check off the annual 21 days of prayer and fasting. That we're not just going to check off the box of I did it at the beginning of the year. But we're going to say, God, would you awaken inside of me a cry for you? Would you awaken inside of me a cry for you to move in our day? God, would you awaken me so that I can watch and pray, so that I can see properly the moment. And when I recognize the moment, a cry comes out of me that says, God, would you move in our day? Listen, one of the things that's come out of this past season is, is that I believe God has begun to finally convince some people that there is no plan B. I think that this past season, and I'm, I'm seeing this in the church, I have not heard the word revival as much as I have heard in the past, in the past year or so with churches and leaders. There's an understanding, and listen, I come from California, so maybe we've been there a little bit quicker because I live in the heart of Babylon, it feels like. But, but, but there, and, and I want to I tell you this. I believe deeply in, in civic duty. I believe deeply that we need to get the church to get out and vote. I believe deeply that we need to be actively engaged in society and all that stuff. But I'm going to tell you right now, we have somehow fallen into some thought process and some trap that, that, that may, you know, if God doesn't move, well, we've got some programs if God doesn't move or we're going to get enough people to get out and vote and that's going to somehow bring the change that we need. I'm telling you right now, people are getting to a place where they're realizing it is God or no plan B. That we need him to move in our day. That we need God to come in our day. That we don't have some backup plan, some second. It is him. Man, if you read scripture, this is where the, the, the people, the stories of scripture were this. You ever read the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer? There's no plan B. Jonathan's with his armor bearer. He's like, let's go take on this army of the Philistines. And they're walking around, you know, they're walking along and the armor bearer's, are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. God could say by many or by few. And he throws his sword on his back. He climbs up. When he gets to the top of that hill, 
and there's going to be an army of the Philistines. He wasn't like, we'll get up there. We'll kind of assess the situation. We'll kind of see what our odds are. Are we going to be able to do it? And if not, listen, I got a back door. We got a plan to get out of there. No, it's either we get up there and God shows up or we die. That's it. And I'm telling you right now, God is bringing the church to that place where we actually realize, God, we need you and you are plan A and there is no plan B. God, we need you to move in our day. We need you to pour out your spirit. We need you to supernaturally come as you have in the days of old. And if you do not, there is not another plan. There is not somehow we're going to organize better and we're going to protest better. And we're going to, and I, I got to tell you this, I'm not even opposed to some of that stuff. But, but I'm just telling you, there's a, there's a cry that comes in our heart that when we watch, when we recognize the moment, when we recognize that, that God is about to do something and it is the only option we have, that a cry gets awakened in your heart. And I think sometimes we just have to be honest. Uh, this, I believe this all in my heart. There is a cry inside of you. We can have the whole worship team come up. It's just me and you. Just me and you. You want me to sing or lead or... You don't want me to do that. You trust me. You don't want me to do that. Um, but the worship team can come up. Are they coming back up? Well, they can. They don't have to. Doesn't matter to me. It's not my church. It's Renata's church. Renata, what do you want them to do? You're in charge here. Um, oh, if you bring me a guitar, I can do G D. You know, G G D. Yeah, I got G D E minor C. That's what I got. Uh, and it has to be some early vineyard song. Um, I just believe that God wants to awaken a cry inside of you. And it's in you already. Can I just say this right now? It is in you. When you got saved, there was a hunger that was placed in you for God. There was a cry for God to move that was placed in you. Now listen, it may be under a bunch of rubble. It may have been buried. But this is why those times of separating are so beautiful because God just comes in and just kind of starts removing. You ever, you ever sprint, you ever cleaned your garage out? And while you were cleaning stuff out, all of a sudden you found something, you're like, I totally forgot I had this. It's just been buried in some corner somewhere because it's just been piled. I'm telling you right now, in, in prayer and fasting, God just starts removing a bunch of that stuff and says, hey, see this right here? This is the cry for me and you. It's been there. It got buried with some stress. It got buried with worried about bills. It got buried with busyness. It got buried with work. It got buried with laziness. It got buried, but it's in there. I'm telling you right now, God wants to awaken that. Stand up with me. Father, I pray even as Radiant is in 21 days of prayer and fasting, God, that you would awaken a cry in our hearts, that you would awaken a hunger, that you would stir a fresh hunger for you, and that you would stir a fresh desire and hunger for you to move in our day. Lord, we recognize here in Kansas City, that prayer is rumbling because a baby's coming, that you're stirring a fresh hunger in the hearts of people. Will you just take just a moment before the Lord? We're gonna take a moment just to worship, but I want you just to get before the Lord and say, God, would you awaken a cry in me? Increase a cry for you. Increase a cry for you to move. Awaken whatever areas in my life would be spiritually asleep right now. Come on, I want you to do